Welcome, everyone. So good to have all of you at our churches today. Uh, today, we're in our final conversation of the Bible for Grown-Up series that we've been in. If you've missed any of these previous conversations, I would really encourage you to go back and make sure you watch them either on our app or our website. You can listen to them as well. You can download discussion guides so you can go a little bit deeper in the process as well. And I just want to say, if you've enjoyed this series and you would like a more in-depth survey of the Bible, this coming Saturday, April the 2nd, we're going to be doing a basically a it's over three hours. We're not going to be sitting there for three hours, but uh, over three hours, we're going to be doing a workshop as part of our Theopraxis series entitled Context. And really what we're going to be doing is we're going to be, now that you understand the story, we're going to understand the story of the Bible from this series, is we're going to take you on a survey through the Bible that I think is going to help you understand and personalize scripture even more than you ever have because you'll understand its context at a whole nother level. So on your seat, there was a card and let us know if you're going to join or if you're going to attend us that attend that day. And on the back of that, there is a QR code that, if you will, if you will just um, scan that QR code, it'll take you to a link where you can sign up. So make sure you let us know if you're going to be there on. And it's going to be at each campus. Let me just say that because I did have that question this morning. It will be at each campus. So um, Blountstown, you'll be on Blountstown campus. Chipley will be on Chipley campus. Marion on Chip Marion campus. So love to have all of you part of that day. Now, as we've said for the past few weeks, uh, whether you're a Christ follower, you're not a Christ follower. Some of you, you know stories from the Bible, but very few of you, you know the story or the backstory of how we got the Bible that, as we have it today. In fact, what we have said throughout this series is this, if you don't understand how we got the Bible, you'll misunderstand what's in the Bible. And this is so important, this story, this backstory is so important because the reality is if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's easy to dismiss the stories in the Bible when someone comes and punches through something that you thought about the Bible or you felt like you understood about the Bible and you didn't feel like you had a good defense. So it's then easy to start kind of just dismissing the stories in the Bible. Now, here's what I know. If you were given a Bible as a child or if you were given a Bible as an adult, the way you got your Bible is probably a lot like the way I got my Bible. When I got it, it was chaptered and it was versed. It had maps in the back. It was wrapped in some kind of leather cover, right? But the very first Bible, the way it came to be was very, very different. In fact, as we discovered, the story of the Bible, it doesn't begin in the beginning of the Bible as we have it laid out today. No, the story of the Bible, it begins in the very first century when Jesus' former Jesus followers, who all abandoned him and gave up hope on him at his crucifixion, suddenly found that his tomb was empty, but they didn't assume there was a resurrection. They assumed that somebody stole the body of Jesus until they saw their dead friend alive. That is absolutely amazing. Think about that. They saw their dead friend alive with their own eyes and then dozens and hundreds of other people, they saw him as well. And suddenly this story that hadn't seemed worth telling at all was now worth telling the world. As a result of that, we have four independent accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where they're referenced as the Gospels in what we now have as the Bible. And then before long, there were some non-Jewish people known as Gentiles who lived along the Mediterranean Rim, and they begin to hear the stories of the resurrection of Jesus. And so they begin to believe in Jesus. And because of their interest in this Jew called Jesus, they became interested in the sacred text of the Jews, which is what we call the Old Testament. Now, you got to understand, they were not interested in the Jewish religion of Judaism. 
They were just interested in how the Jewish scriptures that we now call the Old Testament, how they pointed to Jesus and told the story of Jesus. So these early Christ followers, they had these four accounts of Jesus' life. They had the Jewish scripture that we call the Old Testament now. And they had the correspondence of a famous church planner who traveled around the Mediterranean Rim and wrote letters to churches that he started. And so that's where we want to pick up on our story today. And that's where we want to spend the rest of our time today talking about this guy that many of you know as the Apostle Paul. Now, here's what I bet. I bet all of you, whether you're a Christ follower or not a Christ follower, whether you've ever owned a Bible or never owned a Bible, you most likely have heard of the Apostle Paul. In fact, if you've ever read the Bible, you probably read some of what the Apostle Paul wrote. You may not just have known that you're doing that. In fact, if you ever attended a wedding, you probably heard some of what the Apostle Paul wrote, and it was totally taken out of context in most weddings, just a thought. But anyhow, so it's good, but it's kind of taken out of context often. The, the Apostle Paul, in fact, he did more to impact the world with the gospel than almost any other apostle. Matter of fact, um, I, I think he really did more than all the other com apostles combined. In fact, historians unanimously agree that his writings have had a significant impact on Western culture and Western civilization. So when you think about it that way, you go, wow, the Apostle Paul is a big deal. But here's what I can tell you. If the Apostle Paul was with us today, he, he would protest and say, no, you, you don't need to talk about me that way. He'd say, no, no, I'm not a big deal. He would talk about himself in a very different way. In fact, in a letter to some Christ followers at a church in Corinth, he, and in fact, it was a church that he planted, here's what the Apostle Paul says about himself. This is very interesting. Watch what he says. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. Literally, out of all of Jesus' followers, he said, you should put me at the back of the line. He said, you should put me at the bottom of the list. In fact, notice the rest of this verse. He says, for I am the least of all the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Now, why would the apostle Paul say that? I mean, after all, I mean, look at all that the apostle Paul accomplished for God. Look at the impact that he made on the world. It seems like he should deserve more than anybody else, but that's not how he sees it. And here is why. Notice the rest of this verse. He said, because... I persecuted the church of God. And you know, sometimes I read that and I just get emotional with the Apostle Paul, I think, when he wrote that. I feel, I feel like, wow. And here's why I get emotional about this statement sometimes. Because I think all of us at times have felt like, I, I don't even deserve to be used by God. You ever felt that way? I mean, think about it this way. When the Apostle Paul, he stepped onto the pages of history, he, he, his name was not Paul. He wasn't a fan or a follower of Jesus. He was persecuting people who did follow Jesus. I mean, his mission early on in life was to crush this group of people called Jesus followers and this movement that we now call the church. In fact, the apostle Paul, he went so far as to get full authority from the high priest to hunt down Christ followers throughout that region, have them arrested, and he was responsible for the persecution and the death of many followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, he tortured many of them or had them tortured to the point that they denied their faith. In fact, 
the first time we were introduced to him in scripture, he is sanctioning the stoning of Stephen, a devout follower of Christ. And imagine carrying that with you for the rest of your life, even though you knew you were forgiven by Jesus. And here's the thing. He just was continuing. I mean, his whole life, that's his life. He was just committed to crushing this young church until Jesus showed up himself to Paul. And I'm just telling you, this is so remarkable. You can read about it in Acts chapter nine. In an afternoon, this guy who was named Saul, his name became Paul and he flipped his allegiance and he flipped his life mission and he went from the church's number one enemy to the church's number one advocate. So God chose, I mean, this is pretty incredible when you think about it, that God chose to use his greatest enemy to take the message to the world. How crazy is that? Now, this is why I get emotional about this because when I read this line, because I persecuted the church of God, here's what I want you to know is true about you because it just becomes true for all of us. And that is this, regardless of what you've done or regardless of who you have been, it doesn't matter how many people you've hurt it doesn't matter how, how, what you've gone through, how many sins you committed in your life. There is room in God's family for you because here's the thing, God, if God had the, a purpose for the apostle Paul, God has a purpose for your life as well. And there's nothing you can do that can sabotage that to the place that can keep him fulfilling his purpose in his life because he absolutely used the apostle Paul who was trying to destroy the Jesus movement. Now that, I think that's, very personal to all of us. But the other thing I want to do today is I want to also say, okay, and God used this guy then to impact the kingdom of God in ways that none of us ever could imagine. And I think there are at least three contributions the apostle Paul makes to the story of the Bible, which is why we want to spend our time talking about him today. Three contributions that the apostle Paul makes. So I just want to walk through them. You want to probably want to write these down. Here's the first one. And that is this, the apostle Paul wrote some of the Bible. So the Apostle Paul, he wrote a lot of letters. 13 of them have survived. Several were to churches, a couple were to individuals, and one of them was to a group of Christ followers in Rome. So the Apostle Paul, he wrote some of the Bible. In fact, most, about half of the New Testament that we have today was written by the Apostle Paul. And these letters that he would write would be passed around from church to church. They would be meticulously copied over and over again. They would be treated as valuable and reliable scripture. And here's the thing that I do not want you to miss. When the Apostle Paul wrote these letters that we now have in the New Testament, he was not writing with the Bible in mind as we know the Bible. He had no idea that the Jewish scriptures and the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and these documents that he wrote that ended up as part of the New Testament would end up in this collection that we now call the Bible. Think about it. The Apostle Paul, he was writing letters to churches and to friends to help them know what he had seen and what he had learned and then to give them guidance on how to follow Jesus. That's what he was trying to do. He was trying to disciple young believers. So that's the first reason. The Apostle Paul, he wrote some of the Bible, about half of the New Testament to be exact. The second reason the Apostle Paul's story is important to the Bible is this. The Apostle Paul, he explains the relationship between the Jewish scriptures and what Jesus did. 
So if you've ever been confused about how the Old Testament and the New Testament go together, if you've ever been about confused about the God of the Old Testament and God in the New Testament, well, here's the thing. The Apostle Paul is your guy. Think about this. He was a Pharisee. He was, he was at the top of his class as a Pharisee. In fact, he was such an expert in Jewish scriptures that he understood maybe better than anybody the relationship between the old covenant and the new, or the old old covenant, which was the Jewish scriptures, and the new covenant that Jesus initiated. In fact, the apostle Paul, he gives two pieces of advice. He gives many pieces of advice on how the relationship between the Jewish scriptures and what Jesus did, how they connect. But there's two pieces of advice that I think are very important for us to look at of the relationship between the old covenant, which is the Jewish scripture and the new covenant, which is what we now call the New Testament. Some of that is found, if you wanna write these references down in Romans chapter 15 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you wanna read these chapters later. But I think his first piece of advice would be, based on those passages of scripture, would be this. First one, read the Old Testament for information and inspiration. I think that's his first piece of advice. Learn from the Jewish people and their history. Learn what God has done through history to set up his arrival into this world. There is a lot of helpful information that you can find in the Old Testament. And then the other thing you do is you read it for inspiration to help you keep focused on and following Jesus. Because what you do is you see how God's people struggled and then you see how God came through for them in just powerful ways. And so God was faithful when his people reached out to him. And I'm telling you, you begin to understand the character of God by reading how God responded to his people and begin to understand that is our God. And you know what? That is inspiring and that is motivating. In fact, as we shared with you last week, the Apostle Paul, he said it this way in Roman, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So he says, you should be reading for inspiration. You should be reading for motivation, for endurance and encouragement to give hope. But as you read, remember the old covenant, it was a covenant between God and the Jews. So don't try to use this as as this kind of guide to pick and choose which promises that you want to pull out for yourself from the old covenant. See, while it applies to us, it doesn't apply to you and me in the personal kind of way as we talked about, gave you the example of Jeremiah 29, 11, that while that is true about the character of God, it, it was a promise to the Jews. But what does apply to you and I very up close and personal is this, is the new covenant, that brand new covenant that Jesus established when he came to earth and he lived and he died and he rose again. So the second piece of advice that I think he would give you as you read through the New Testament, you, you see, or his writings, you see this, and that would be this, is you should take your application cue from Jesus's new covenant command for you. Don't miss this. You should take your application cue from Jesus's new covenant command for you. So when you're trying to figure out how to relate to others, how to view sexuality, how to treat your spouse, how to parent your kids, how to manage your finances. You should take your cue from Jesus's new covenant command for you because the reality is Jesus raised the standard with his new covenant command than the Old Testament standard was when he gave us that new covenant command. 
And if you've been around here very long, you know that what that man, that command, it demands so much from us. In fact, on the night before his death, Jesus sat down with his closest disciples and he told him this in John chapter 13. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. But he didn't stop there. He just didn't stop with love one another. He says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And you could finish that sentence by referring back to the previous sentence, as I have loved you. In other words, you, you don't love the way that you've been loved or the way that you wanna be loved. That, that's the golden rule. And there's nothing wrong with the golden rule. It's good, but it's not the new rule that Jesus, or command that Jesus is giving. See, the golden rule says, well, you love the way that you've been loved, or you love you know, the way that you want people to love you. That's kind of the golden rule. Jesus says, no, I'm introducing a much higher standard. It is the platinum rule. I want you to love one another the way that I have loved you. And then the next day, Jesus demonstrated that kind of way, that kind of love in a way that took these disciples' breath away because it took Jesus' breath away as he died on the cross. So every letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, he references back to this one command to love one another as Jesus loved us. In fact, here, here's how the Apostle Paul said this in a letter to writing, he was writing to some Christians in Galatia. He says, rather than the way that you've been living. He's referencing the way that we've been living. He says, rather, here's what I want you to do. I want you to serve one another humbly in love because you can only have humility if your heart is filled with love. He says, so rather serve one another humbly in love. And then look at this next line. It's absolutely powerful. He says, for the entire law, all 613 commands that we talked about a couple weeks ago. He says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what you'll find if you read the Apostle Paul's letters. Time and time again, the Apostle Paul, he points back to Jesus or what Jesus command and what Jesus demonstrated. And he says, Okay, you look at this law, this new command, and he says, here's how you know how to love. Here, here's how you know what to do. And the question is, you just ask yourself this question, what does that kind of love require of you? What, what is that kind of love? The love that Jesus said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And the question is, so what kind of, what does that kind of love require of me in this situation? What kind of what does that love require of me in this other situation or this circumstance or dealing with this person? What is that kind of love? A love that lays its life down for its enemy as well. A love that loves those that persecute them. A love that forgives those who crucify them. What kind of love? What does that require of you? You know, we think trying to keep the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments are hard. Oh no, that, that's pretty simple. Because see, you cannot murder a person and not love them. You, you cannot steal from a person and not love them. And, and Jesus comes along and goes, I want you to love. I, I don't want you just not to steal from people. I, I want you to love them. I, I mean, you, you cannot lie to a person and not love them. And Jesus says, I'm raising a whole new standard. 
And the Apostle Paul understood that, how radical this standard was. And if you've ever read the Apostle Paul's letters and, and felt like that he was introducing a lot of do's and don'ts, a lot of rules, he wasn't. He was not introducing Judaism 2.0. No, in his letters, he just gives us a lot of examples of what it looks like to love Jesus. He's trying to tell a group of people who understood how to keep laws and knew how to not lie to people or, or not steal from people or not murder people and, and live by those laws by saying, no, I'm taking it to a whole nother level. I want you to do all that because you love them. I want you to treat them based on love. Let me, let me give you some quick examples of the Apostle Paul, how he points this out. Ephesians chapter five, verse 21, he says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ because that's how Christ loved us. This word submit right here, it means to treat the other person as if they're the most important person in the room. And men, he's writing this to you as well as to the ladies and the children because this verse right here, it's the verse that capitalizes how men are to treat wives and wives are to treat husbands and children are to respond to parents and parents are to respond to. He says, let me just tell you, before you ever try to look at what husbands are supposed to do for wives and wives are supposed to do for husbands and children are supposed to do for parents and parents are supposed to do. He said, all of you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You, that, that means you treat them as if they're the most important in the person in the room. And some of you go, well, why would I submit to somebody like somebody else? Why would I do that? Why would I ever want to put them before me? I, I don't even like that person at my work. They don't, they don't deserve. I mean, sometimes a spouse will say, well, they don't deserve for me to treat them the way verse 22 through the end of the chapter read. To which the apostle Paul said, of course they don't deserve. That's not why you do it. But remember that, love one another as I have loved you. You do it out of reverence for Christ. He said, this, this is how you apply it in your life. You submit to one another because Jesus chose to submit and Jesus served you by dying on a cross for you when you didn't even deserve it. And that's pretty convicting when you really think about it or love from that perspective, Right? He gives us another example in this same letter, Ephesians chapter four, verse 32, he writes this. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. And you go, wait, 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 forgive him, forgive her. They, they don't deserve forgiveness. You, you, have, you have no idea. The apostle Paul had no idea what they did to me. You, you don't refuse, you realize what they refuse even to do for me, which the apostle Paul would say, I, I think you're confused. That would be the golden rule thinking, treat other people the way you want to be treated. He says, no, no, no. As a Christ follower, you're to live by Jesus' new covenant commands, which means you are to be kind and you are to be compassionate to one another, but you don't stop there. He says, you also forgive each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. And you go, oh yeah, Jesus loved me this way. He forgave me when I didn't deserve to be forgiven. He, he was kind to me when I didn't deserve his kindness. See, that's what it means to love one another the way that Christ has loved us. Let me just give you another example of how Jesus loved us. And some of you are like, please stop. I'll cry, uncle. Just don't, don't give me another one. Like, this is hard enough, right? I want you to listen to what he said to the Christ followers living in Philippi. This is incredible. He says, in your relationships with one another, this should get everybody's attention. 
If you struggled with any relationship this past week, if you struggled with any relationship this past month, this past year, you, you need to listen to this. Here's what he says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Amen. What was the mindset of Christ Jesus? It was to love unconditionally, irrationally, radically. So you want to know what you do in your relationships? Well, I'm just going to tell you, it's not easy to do, but pretty simple to understand, right? That's why it's so painful when we read it. He's saying, you should love people the way Jesus loved. That's what he says, have the same mindset as Jesus. So what did Jesus do? We'll go back to the passage in John 13. What did Jesus do? All the disciples walk in the room and they're having the last supper. They didn't know it was the last supper. They thought it was a Passover celebration. They walk in the room. They all have proud hearts and dirty feet because nobody washes anybody's feet except Jesus. He didn't power up, he powered down. He didn't ask to be served that night. He became a servant. He never used his power position for his own benefit. He used it always for the benefit of others. And if you read the first three verses of John 13, that tells the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, he says he knew his time has come and he knew that all power had been given to him from the, from the Father. He's the most powerful person in the room. And what does he do? He treats everybody else as if they're the most important person in the room. And he goes ahead and forgives the people who are gonna deny him and betray him in advance. You know, here's the thing. We could go on and on, but the Apostle Paul's letters are all very clear. The Old Testament, what the Old Testament does, it points to Jesus and you should read the stories for information and inspiration. You, you should learn from the examples of the Jews or the exam, examples of the Jews' life so that you understand that through the endurance that they taught us in scripture and the encouragement that we're provided, we can have hope. But here's the thing, when it comes to the application of how to live, you should take your cues from Jesus' new command for you. And just imagine, just imagine how differently people would view the church right now if we got this one thing right. Like in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. Imagine how different our life and our relationships would be if we got it right. Would you have stronger friendships and better relationships at work? I mean, if this is how you treated one another, would your relationships with your parents be better if you always treated them like this? What about with your kids? What about in your marriage? I want you to think about that for a while. Now, there's one other final reason that the Apostle Paul pay, uh, plays this pivotal role in the story of the Bible. And we're just gonna briefly touch on this today because we're gonna really go deeper into this in a couple of weeks, you'll understand why. And that is this, the Apostle Paul in th in authenticates the most important event recorded in these documents, this thing called the Bible. He records the most important event, and that is this, the resurrection. If you've ever wondered or doubted if the resurrection is true, I just want you to kind of lean in for just a moment because this is really just too good to miss. The Apostle Paul, he authenticates the resurrection in, in a way that no one else does. It's practically an airtight case the way he presents it. How do, how do we know it happened? Well, think about this. The Apostle Paul, he wrote his letters to the Corinthians about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, which in his, in his listing, he lists out, or as his, or his 
telling of the resurrection of Jesus, he lists out eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive after the crucifixion. Now, you know what makes that so powerful? Because see, there's not enough time in that 20 years for people to kind of make up their own story for some kind of legend or some kind of fable to arise. The Apostle Paul, he named names that people would have went to and asked for themselves because they were still alive. He gave irrefutable evidence that if it had been fabricated, it would have been way too easy to dismiss it. So the Apostle Paul is incredibly important to the story of how we got the Bible because he wrote part of it. He explains the importance of and how to understand the relationship between the Jewish scripture, which is the old covenant, and the new covenant that Jesus initiated. And the apostle Paul, thirdly, he authenticates the most important thing or event that's ever recorded in these documents that we call the Bible. And that is the event, is the foundation of our faith, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So these letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, along with the letters written by other people like Peter and James, which was Jesus' half-brother, and the four accounts of Jesus' life, which we call the Gospels, all of them were collected and all of them were protected, not because their goal was to put together something called the Bible. They were collected and they were protected because of who wrote them down and what they wrote. See, they didn't want to lose these valuable, these precious, these eyewitness accounts, these personal instructions on how to live and how to follow Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Some of you are going, well, how did we get the Bible? Because it's in all these different parts right up until this point in time. Well, in the fourth century, after hundreds of years of persecution, Constantine, he lifted the religious ban to the Roman Empire and he allowed Christianity to be legal. And all of a sudden, all of these collectors and all these scholars, they came out of the shadow and they begin to work together and they begin to compare and they begin to compile these collections of scripture or these writings that they had that they valued as reliable and they valued them as scripture. And they begin to gather these valued documents that had been hidden away and they started copying them meticulously and they've been reviewing them and all these documents that have been passed down from generation to generation often at the cost of their life, they brought them all together. In a very fascinating kind of twist of history, the very empire that crucified Jesus, they funded the collection and the copying of these documents that we now have called the Bible. So around the end of the fourth century, for the first time ever, the Jewish scripture, which is the Old Testament, and the, New, the Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? All of these documents, they were brought together to combine this thing called the Bible, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You know, now know it as the Old Testament and the New Testament. And these writings and these documents, they would impact the world. They would, as we said, they would shape Western civilization in very profound ways. And here's the thing you need to understand. They have shaped my life. I read them every day. And I believe that they can shape yours for the better as well. So here's what we want you to remember, and that is this. Christianity was created by an event that launched a movement. You go, what was that event? The resurrection. What was the movement? It was the church that produced documents that were collected and protected and eventually bound together in a book called the Bible.
Now, the Bible in Latin means book, the book. So whenever you pick up the Bible, know you're reading the book of all books. That's what you have to understand. See, you gotta understand, the Bible did not create Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for our faith and is the catalyst that created the Bible. So here's your homework that I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself the most important question about the Bible. And the most important question that you can ask yourself is this, is that not, not am I at peace with everything in the Bible? The most important question that you can ask yourself is, am I at peace with the God who came to earth to die and he rose again to pay the penalty for my sin so I can have a relationship with him? That's the question that matters the most. And once you wrestle with that question, then what I want you to do is I want you to pick up the Bible and maybe for the very first time, read it again in a very fresh way. Read it through the lens of what we've talked about in this series of sermons over the last four weeks. Not getting hung up on what, but focusing on the who of the Bible that this is about. It's about a God who created and founded and loved and lived as one of us. He died and he was buried and he was raised back to life. And he did it all because he loves you and he loves me. Read it from the perspective of one of the first Christ followers who were so astonished by what they heard from the apostles and what they had experienced firsthand and what they discovered from the Jewish scriptures that they read that they risked their lives to protect it and to pass it on and to launch a movement that has shaped our world. In fact, I want you to read it, understanding that it's more than just a religious text. It's more than just some fairy tales that you heard as a child. It's a book with reliable and extraordinary message. And I'm telling you, an extraordinary message that is unimaginable when we understand how much God loves us. And I'm telling you, it, it can make our world, it can make our lives, it can make everything better today. I, I wanna challenge you to read it, reread it, because that's the real story of the Bible. Now, there's one other reason that I wanna challenge you to read the Bible. See, throughout this series, I've used this Bible as an illustration of the Bible as we have it today. And what most of you don't understand is um, this is now my Bible, it was not originally my Bible. This is one of my dad's Bibles. When my dad passed away, um, he basically had filled up six Bibles with notes and highlights from front to back. My dad taught me to love God's word. I'd wake up in the mornings, oftentimes early in the morning, four or 4.30 in the morning, and my dad would be in his office in God's word, highlighting, writing in his Bible go to bed at night, get up 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. My dad would be in his office again in God's word. One time I asked my dad, I said, dad, why do you read the Bible so much? Do you love it that much? He goes, no, no, I, I love the Bible, but I really don't love the Bible. He said, I love the God of the Bible. See, 
My, my dad didn't read the Bible um, to, to debate people or to bash people with the Bible. In fact, I, I never heard him do that in all of his adult years or my adult years or teenage years. In fact, he taught the Bible for like 35 years in prison ministry. Amazing teacher. I, I learned to teach the Bible from my dad. As a young man, I would sit and I'd teach the Bible in a prison setting over at ACI. Did it for like six years. And my dad would sit in my class and he would critique me and teach me the Bible on the way home. Say, so you didn't get this right, but if you'll go back and correct it, you know. Um, it's the reason I don't have a problem saying I was wrong. Um, because... Um, but one of the things that he said many times to me, and when people would be using the Bible wrongly, he, he would go, people just don't get it. He said, um, we don't read the Bible to follow the Bible. We read the Bible to fall more in love and follow Jesus. And I'm just gonna tell you, that has had the biggest impact on my life. It's made me love the Bible for what it is, it's had a greater impact on my ministry than what you can imagine because every time I open the Bible, it makes me think about, I'm not opening this to follow the Bible. I'm opening this to fall more in love with Jesus. And I think if you will do this, it will have a bigger impact on your children than you can imagine. I'm telling you, it has impacted my life. It's impacted my family's life. It's impacted every one of you. My dad's appreciation and appropriate love for the Bible that led him to love God with all his heart, soul, and mind, and to try to live out that new command, it's had an impact on every one of you who are part of RCC in a way that you can never imagine. And I just want to say to those of you who are parents, here's the other reason you should read the Bible, because you never have a clue the impact of falling in love with Jesus is going to have on your children and generations to come. It's the only way they're going to learn to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And as I went back, because I got two of his Bibles and the rest of them were spread out to my sisters um, and read through these books with his notes. Um, it's been pretty amazing to see scripture through the lens of my parent who read the Bible to love Jesus and follow him more. So I wanna challenge you to read the Bible, fill up as many Bibles as you can with notes. So when your children and your grandchildren pick up your Bibles, they understand why you lived the life that you did. And they get a clearer picture of what it really means to love God the way that you were designed to love God. But here's what I'm gonna say, even before you leave your Bibles to your family and death, they'll see your life because you chose to take your application cue from the new covenant command. That's why we read the Bible. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray for us and um, after I pray, the band's gonna come out and lead us in a song and um, most of you know that one of the songs that I pray or listen to every morning um, is God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. We're not going to do that song. It's another song that we're going to do. But this song kind of goes along with that theme. I thought that would get some of you. 
<laughs> but that song goes along with this theme of I need you and it's, it's more modern and you know it and that's the reason we wanna do it. Um, but there's this one line that says, you're the one that guides my heart. And one of the primary ways that God does that is through his word, what we now have in the Bible. And so as we sing this song, I just want it to be an incredible reminder of God's incredible love for us. That he was our creator, that he was a founder of a nation that set up the opportunity for all the people of the world to be blessed. And then he recorded his love story and this thing that we have now called the Bible. And if we open it up, it not only will guide our hearts, but it'll guide the hearts of generations to come. Let me pray for us. God, I just thank you so much for your word. As the psalmist David wrote, um, and I want to echo his words, Lord, how I love your law. How I love your word. Because it helps me understand how to love you and know your love so that I can love as you've loved. And God, I just pray for our church family that we will understand why we read the Bible. We don't read it to follow the Bible. We read it to follow and fall more in love with the author of it all, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I just ask right now that your Holy Spirit will come and you'll just take the words of the song and you'll just drive deep the desire to be guided by your love through your word deeper than ever before. And that some of us maybe for the first time will have the courage to open it up, realizing it's not a book to beat us up. It's, it's a guide. It's a love story. It's information that we need to know that will give us encouragement and endurance so that we can have hope. It's inspiration that we need to experience so that we can have endurance and hope. But more importantly, it's just you telling us how to live in your love, experience your love, and then live that out. And God, that's what we wanna do. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks. Amen. Mm -hmm.